0: Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this
1: program, Nancy Goodman-Torpey and Peter Torpey. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. The U.S. National Park Service has over 400 sites that are visited by over 300 million people each year. This week we'll be talking about how accessible these venues are.
0: We'll speak with Ray Bloomer, a 42-year veteran of the National Park Service, whose role is now being an accessibility specialist for accessibility support programs about what the National Park Service is doing to make their sites accessible to everybody. But first, for our tip of the week, this week's tip comes from Ray Bloomer.
2: I've always been extremely proud of the fact that our park rangers along with our volunteers really do go out of their way to make sure that people with various types of disabilities get the best opportunity that can be made available to them. And I think that when people go to a national park or any type of uh, national park unit, I think it's always good to make sure you connect up with a ranger and ask whatever uh, your needs might be. Ask if uh, there's anything that uh, can be provided that would help that person to have a good experience. Our rangers really do go out of their way to make sure that people have as much of an equal opportunity as possible.
0: You know, we've visited an awful lot of national parks and we've spoken with an awful lot of park rangers and we have universally been impressed at not only their knowledgeability but their friendliness and their willingness to help.
2: I think we've got a wonderful group of people. I can honestly say I don't know too many other federal agencies that have the type of passion for sharing their facilities like the National Park Service does.
0: That's really evident. Let's start by meeting Ray and learning about his role at the National Park Service.
2: I'm Ray Bloomer, and I'm an accessibility specialist with the National Park Service.
0: And I gather you've been there for quite a while.
2: Been there for 42 years.
0: That's quite a while. How did you get started at the National Park Service?
2: I began at Independence National Historic Park in Philadelphia, which is where Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell Congress Hall and uh, other historic sites are. And that was in 1976.
0: I understand you're blind. Were you working as a regular park ranger, although blind, or did you lose your sight later?
2: No, I was blind at the time. I was hired into the position as a a park ranger. I was a park ranger interpreter, historic interpreter. Uh, I was actually the first blind person that was ever hired into a ranger position.
1: And are you totally blind or do you have some partial vision?
2: I have better than light perception, kind of more like shadow vision.
0: What does your job as an accessibility specialist entail?
2: My job is to provide consultation, technical assistance. I provide a great deal of training throughout the national parks. I probably do 15 or 20 presentations per year, conducting five or six trainings per year, to National Park, along with other individuals. I'm actually duty stationed at the National Center on Accessibility, which is a program of Indiana University, and it is funded through a uh, cooperative agreement between the National Park Service and Indiana University. And at NCA, I am the Director of Education and Technical Assistance.
0: And through all of those presentations and training programs, you're able to distribute information and the general philosophy, I guess, of the National Park Service to its individual units.
2: That is our goal. And we try to train people at all different levels from our facility managers that will do the retrofitting, uh, exhibit designers along with our park rangers who deliver the program. So we try to provide training at all different levels.
0: You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 This week's focus topic is the United States National Park Service and what they are doing to enhance accessibility of their properties and programs to everybody.
1: Before we talk about some of the specific projects in which you've been involved and in which you've consulted, maybe we could give an overview of some of the accessibility features of the parks and what the parks think about in terms of accessibility.
2: Well, when we talk about accessibility, we are focusing on two aspects of it. One is physical accessibility, meaning that uh, people with all types of physical disabilities can get into, through, and use a uh, a facility, whether it's uh, indoors or outdoors, indoors being any type of uh, structure or anything like that, outdoors being trails, campgrounds, uh, beaches, any type of outdoor experience that we might have, and that also includes uh, any of our scenic overlooks, battlefields, uh, forts, things along those lines. Then we also have uh, programmatic accessibility, From I guess from a legal point of view, programs are everything from our brochures, uh, audiovisuals, exhibits, walks, talks, and tours, anything that a visitor might do in a national park where there is opportunity to gain benefit. So we look for ways of making all of those things as accessible as possible.
1: And you talked a little bit about the indoor and the outdoor activities. You know, often when I think of the national parks, I think of the great outdoors and Yosemites and, you know, walking through trees and forests. But as you say, some of them are indoors. So can you give us an overview of the kinds of things that national parks actually include?
2: sure pete that's a great question too because uh you're right most people when they do think of national parks they are thinking of those kind of iconic parks that we have yellowstone the grand canyon yosemite uh, hawaii volcanoes and places like that the national park service has a very wide range of units everything from historic sites like statue of liberty and ellis island Boston National Park, which includes Bunker Hill and uh, places like the um, Old South Meeting House. And then on the West Coast, you've got uh, Alcatraz as an example. We have historic forts. We have battlefields, whether they be Revolutionary War or Civil War. We have sites such as Valor in the Pacific at um, Pearl Harbor, So we've got all different sites uh, relating to all different periods of history. We have many historic homes that are focusing on personages, such as we've got uh, several different presidential sites or the home of uh, Carl Sandburg. And then we've got memorials. Washington Monument, Jefferson Memorial, Lincoln Memorial, and that's just the name but a few. I think we're up to 417 National Park units right now.
1: Wow. You know, it's interesting talking about the diversity and the breadth of these sites and how different they are. It's interesting. It must make your job rather difficult because there isn't one solution that fits all of these different venues. And When we were setting up this interview last week, you mentioned that there's a fair amount of autonomy at each of the national parks as to how they pursue these accessibility goals. Can you talk about that and how difficult the job is?
2: Well, the ultimate goal is to try to make, obviously, all of our sites as accessible as they can be. It is challenging just because many of our sites are natural areas so you're dealing with nature and the physical challenges that uh, nature provides in terms of barriers to different people with different kinds of disabilities. We're also, when I mentioned all the different historic sites, they unto themselves provide a challenge. A lot of people feel that because they particular site is historic, that it can't be changed, and that's not necessarily so. We do, in many instances, make changes at our national historic sites, but we're always looking to try to find the balance between accessibility and historic preservation. We want to make sure that any change that we make is not going to significantly impact the historic structure, the character, or the fabric of that site so oftentimes looking for creative solutions to get people with all levels of abilities into our historic sites are challenging and we also have a, a big challenge even in terms of looking at many of our exhibits that have been around for a lot of years it's not inexpensive to make changes or to rehabilitate exhibits, uh, when that does occur, it, uh, it's a great opportunity when we're able to do something like what just recently occurred at Gateway Arch National Park in St. Louis, where they literally did a total rehabilitation of the museum. How
0: do you deal with safety concerns?
2: one thing that we also try to do to the highest degree possible quite frequently people say why don't you put up handrails and guardrails or whatever we try not to impact the visual look of areas in order to make uh an area particularly i guess in some ways overly safe. We don't try to overprotect people. Rather, the goal would be to make sure that we provide good information so that all visitors can make good decisions and safe decisions.
0: You talked about a recent renovation of the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. What accessibility features were you able to incorporate into that?
2: It was a fantastic outcome. That site took every opportunity that we could to make as many things as accessible as possible. So looking at every uh, mode of transportation that you can have on a river, such as a, a Pierrot, a keel boat, a flat boat, a steamboat, and even looking at the Civil War period of time with an ironclad, every one of those that I mentioned has a small scale model so that people who are blind would be able to understand and tactically explore each one of those types of conveyances and then looking at how did we move across the land, everything from kind of stoga wagons to stagecoaches, even as far as a Mormon pushcart, have all been made in a three-dimensional small scale model. And then the arch itself. We've got a model of the environment of the park. We also have uh, various models of the arch, the different uh, conveyances for going up through the arch and a lot of the information on how that story was told. But we've taken every opportunity to make sure that all different people with all types of disabilities will be able to get the complete story to the highest degree that was uh, feasible.
0: So I assume this includes audio information for the blind and printed information for the deaf and wheelchair ramps for people with mobility issues.
2: Absolutely. Audio description uh, goes along with uh, every single exhibit that is there. Any area where there is sound, whether it's... um, Any of the audio visuals that have a soundtrack has captioning, but in addition to that, there's also, uh, for example, when you go into each of the galleries where there is a soundscape, on the pillars uh, in that area is a printed description as part of the exhibit of what the soundscape is about so that people who may not be able to hear that soundscape will be told that there is music of a particular period or sounds of river flowing or uh, sounds of a... Ironsmith shop or something like that. And again, you mentioned ramps for uh, people that are wheelchair users. Uh, Ramps, elevators are all provided for everything. The only thing that has not actually been made physically accessible, that's because it is physically and technologically not feasible is getting up through the arch because the capsules that are used to get people up through the arch were Designed and built back in the 60s, and that cannot physically be uh, changed, but we do have programmatic alternatives so that anyone who may be claustrophobic, uncomfortable going up that way or may not have the physical ability to, we'll see a lot of exhibits that will show what people who are going up, including even a reproduction of the keystone, which is the very last piece of the arch that was put into place at the top. There's uh, That was rebuilt down below so that a person can actually go into that so you can get a sense of what that's like.
0: So that sounds like a real showcase for enabling accessibility to as many people as possible. Have you been able to distribute that philosophy and have other projects at other National Park Service locations?
2: Yes, Nancy, we have done that in a lot of sites. Not every site has the ability to go back and start from scratch and completely redo a, an exhibit or uh, a museum or a structure or whatever it is. But when we have the opportunity to do that over a period of time, we, we do. What, the first major project that I was involved with that really sort of set the stage for a lot of future projects was the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island restoration project back in the uh, early to mid 80s and continuing up through uh, uh, the completion of Ellis Island in 1992. And we actually had the Statue of Liberty and the museum and the exhibits that occurred in there as a model for accessibility. And we were able to use that as an example for many other sites where we made reproduction pieces smaller scale models we showed the effectiveness of them and then there were other projects such as the white house visitor center that was completed about four years ago and that has many models within it a lot of tactile experiences and again not just looking at it for from the point of view of people who are blind but looking at uh, anywhere that audio or dialogue is available. We made sure that those things were also made accessible through captioning or through assistive listening for people uh, who have hearing loss. Everything is within reach ranges. We consider things that require uh, activation, making sure that uh, buttons were in a reachable height, that there was nothing that required twisting, gripping, anything like that to activate them. And then even within the exhibits at the White House Visitor Center, there's a really large interactive piece, which is kind of the signature piece there. And that particular piece, we made sure that not only was it audio described, but there was enough information along with redundant tactile activation so that people who are blind can also navigate it independently. When the White House Visitor Center opened, Michelle Obama was one of the guests at the grand opening and one of her immediate comments were how wonderful she thought it was with all of these touchable pieces that was so great for children. And she didn't even identify whether they did or did not have a disability.
0: Just one more example of a situation where making something accessible for people with disabilities has also made it better for everybody else.
2: That is true.
1: I guess once you have a few of these very successful models completed and people see how well they work, it's a lot easier to duplicate by other um, sites. Yes,
2: that's true. Yes.
1: What support do you give as sort of a central authority or central forum to some of the local sites?
2: We provide as much technical assistance as possible with the development of any type of an exhibit or project that is going on. Our office on accessibility is relatively small. The way our office breaks down, we have our office on accessibility out of Washington, and then we have regional accessibility coordinators. Each park has its own accessibility coordinator, but it means that we're called on for a specific project, we will provide whatever technical assistance we're able to with whatever funding is available.
0: And you work out of the national office, right?
2: That is correct.
0: You mentioned a while ago that most people, and that would include me and Pete, think of the national parks as these natural areas with woods and oceans and volcanoes, And trails. And we are big hikers. And you've talked about how you've managed to make some of the indoor Park Service facilities more accessible to people. What is the National Park Service doing about trails for especially people with visual impairments?
2: That's a good question, because we have have had a lot of opportunity in uh, outdoor areas. For example, Uh, petroglyphs national monument in new mexico they have actually in working with local tribal members in identifying what types of petroglyphs would be appropriate to reproduce so that people could tactically examine what they would be like when they go on the trails also yosemite National Park at the uh, Lower Yosemite Falls, the trail going up to the falls, not only is it accessible to people that have mobility disabilities, but the exhibits along the way also have a lot of tactile opportunities, including one particular exhibit, which sort of shows the whole landscape of the water flow. So they are just a couple examples, but you'll find a lot of tactile opportunities in a variety of sites.
1: Now, we talked a lot about the accessibility of the various sites and monuments for the visitors and the people seeing these sites, but you as a visually impaired person, it sounds like they actually hired you when you were visually impaired. I was wondering if you had some comments about getting employment at the national parks as a person with a disability.
2: The National Park Service does make efforts to hire people with disabilities uh, anywhere through the system. It's not Uh, that we don't have specific jobs that are identified for individuals with disabilities. As I mentioned, I was the first person that was blind that was hired into a ranger position, but since that period of time, uh, we've had several other individuals who were blind that were hired into similar type positions, but we also have people with other disabilities throughout the National Park Service that work in our regional offices, and our service centers, and directly into the parks themselves.
1: So there are lots of opportunities, and if people are interested in those things, they should look into a career at the National Park Service.
2: Yes. A person doesn't necessarily have to, when they're filling out an application, identify themselves as having a disability. That is a voluntary aspect of the job application process but going through uh, usajobs.gov, which is where jobs are announced, and that is the application system that we have within the federal government for applying for federal jobs.
0: Now for this week's final item... How to get more information about the National Park Service, including how to get a free pass to visit the parks, how to get a job to work at one of the parks, and also how to reach Ray Bloomer with questions and other follow-ups.
1: If people are interested in learning more about the National Park Service or some of the specific parks or programs or accessibility issues, where would you direct them?
2: different ways. Number one, I would say go to NPS, National Park Service, NPS.gov and that will get you to our primary website. From there you can go to all of the other different uh, parks and each park has its own website uh, that you can access through NPS.gov. That's one way to do it. The second way to do it is to contact the parks themselves. And let a park know what your particular needs may be. Asking questions such as Do they have alternative formats for brochures? Many of our parks do. Finding out whether there are tactile experiences or whatever one's uh, particular needs might be. But contacting a park directly is also another way to get that information.
0: So you mentioned there's a website for people who are interested in seeking employment in the national parks. Can you give that
2: again? It would be a USAjobs.gov.
0: And if people wanted to contact you to ask questions, is there a way they could do that?
2: People can do that. My uh, number is 812-856-4422. And I am on East Coast time.
1: And do you have an email in case people would prefer to contact you that way?
2: Yes, I do. It's rbloomer, that's r-b-l-o-o-m-e-r at indiana
1: And one other thing I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, many of these national parks do require some kind of entrance fee or pass in order to get in, and there are special passes available for people with
2: disabilities. Can you talk a little about that? Yes, if people would Google America the Beautiful Passport, within that website, there is an access pass. The access pass is something that if you go to any site that has a fee, that site is required to provide the access pass, and it is free. That access pass will get you free entry into any park that has an entrance fee. Any park that has a user fee, such as a camping fee, you would get a 50% discount to that. Now, that does not include anything that is concession operated.
0: And then once you have the pass, it lets not just the person with the pass, but everybody else in the car in for free, right?
2: Yes,
1: And the eligibility requirements to obtain a pass like that?
2: You just have to have a disability.
1: And as usual, we'll have all of that contact information and the URLs in our show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. We'll also have their social media information. That's it for show number 1839.
0: Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking with... Victor Tsaran and Caro Karan, who are both members of the Google Accessibility team, and we'll be discussing their jobs, how they got their jobs, and what Google is doing to make their products more accessible. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show, or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at on success.net or call us at 585 210 8094.